The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So yesterday I saw a, uh, a segment on the, I guess, Tucker Carlson show where Vivek Ramaswamy declared that he's going to run in the Republican primary for the presidency. And, you know, I, I really, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I love it every time somebody jumps into this race. Because the more people there are in this race, the better the chance that my candidate comes out on top. Just say it, you know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't feel that way. But I do have to tell you, I had to swallow really hard when Vivek not only announced, but then went on to lay out his platform. It's, it's pretty similar to Donald Trump, I mean, really. But there were some pieces of it that he articulated so beautifully, like, you know, a meritocracy instead of a uh, ridiculous woke culture. You know, he's an immigrant. Uh, his parents were immigrants. And, you know, it, it was, if I wasn't so adamant about the man that I want to lead this country, Vivek is a very interesting character. And what I think, I loved his two books. I read both of his books. And I think that more than anything else, I love the fact that he is fearless and has said pretty clearly, he didn't say it in this manner because you can't, especially on your announcement, but he is clearly just trying to move the debate. He wants the candidates in the Republican primary to talk about the things that the American people are interested in, not in this nonsense, this uh, petty nonsense bickering and trying to avoid the hard question stuff that goes on so much of the time. And I think if he does nothing else, and I'm not saying that he has no chance, I don't know. I, I, I don't know who has a chance, uh, you know, probably uh, not many. But I just love the fact that he wasn't afraid to articulate some of the things that matter to me. It was very, very, um, it was just reinforcing to know that there are some people out there who understand what the American people are really thinking most of the time, because we're really not thinking about, uh, you know, some of this dribble that politicians want us to be thinking about. For instance, there's a bill out right now and we're we're members we're a member state of the World Health Organization. They're going to be getting together in Switzerland next week and what they're doing is they're negotiating the final terms of an accord that would basically give the WHO centralized authority over everybody, over US policy if there's a pandemic. And so you're beginning to see some fairly emboldened, uh, you know, members of the Republican Party and emboldened because they they understand that these are popular concepts in the uh, in the middle class. And if they want to win any elections ever again, that's where it's going to happen. That's where it's going to take place. Okay, they're no longer the party of the country club. Uh, Now it's the Democrats who are the party of elites. And it's the Republicans who are trying to follow in the um, footsteps of Donald Trump and reach out to the American people. 
So the thought to the average American, I'm not talking about the people who live in San Francisco or Los Angeles or the people who live in New York, but you know, the rest of us, the majority of America, we do not want the World Health Organization making decisions over any kind of pandemic policy for the United States of America. And this accord, this, this accord would be legally binding on all 194 member nations. And it gives the WHO the authority to declare pandemics. And then it submits member countries to the central role of the WHO as the directing and coordinating authority on international health work. So that means they decide about lockdowns, they decide about treatments that are acceptable, they decide about medical supply chains, they decide about surveillance on uh, citizens, they decide what's disinformation and what's false news once a pandemic is declared. Are you kidding me? You think the average American would go for that? Of course not. But unless the Republican Party is willing to step up and say, like Vivek Ramaswamy said yesterday, wait a minute, you work for me. You, you don't sign an accord like that until you get the temperature of the American people. And, and I can tell you right now, I don't need to travel the country to tell you that the majority of Americans do not want some centralized authority over all the U.S. policy in case of a pandemic after what we just learned during a pandemic. First and foremost, we learned that not even a national policy is realistic and does all the things we needed to do. We saw how the, uh, the beautiful concept that the founding fathers put in place that we would have 50 states or at the time it wasn't 50 that we would have states and they would be sort of like uh, you know experiments each one of them and how best to meet the needs of their people because they were close to their people and a federal government serves one purpose and one person purpose only really and that is to keep us safe and they don't even do that right they, they got an open border they have a military that's depleted and they send more money to the Ukraine than they spend on infrastructure in this country, as evidenced by multiple train derailings and multiple explosions at factories. If I didn't know better and if I wasn't afraid that I'd be called some kind of a tinfoil hat conspiracy nut, I would say we may very well be experiencing some serious attacks against this infrastructure that uh, Pete Buttigieg and, uh, and, and, and Joe Biden and all the rest of these uh, meatballs, sandwiches, that's the nice way for me to refer to them because really what I'm thinking is not meatball sandwich. Um, but, you know, they failed. They failed at protecting us. They haven't protected our border. They have not protected uh, our, our international prestige. We got Vladimir Putin yesterday. You can go on the website or whatever. You can look at my, um, my daily download and you can see the video I posted there. It's literally Vladimir Putin lecturing America about all this woke nonsense that we're all caught up in and how you know we're, we're about to implode. Not that I care what Vladimir Putin says, but he made a lot of good points in this speech. And in the meantime, he withdraws from the START Treaty 
And he basically says, look, I'm not abiding by any of these rules anymore. If you, uh, you know, if you want to keep uh, poking me in the chest, I'll call uh, Chairman Xi. He'll come over. Oh, that's actually happening right now as we speak. And he will finance uh, this war against Ukraine. And all you Western nations can continue to pump money into Ukraine as they lose the war. Just saying, you know, it's too late now to help Ukraine win this fight. If we didn't do it at the beginning, it's too late now. I know that. The American people know that. We're watching this and we're saying to ourselves, wait a minute, how is sending more money or sending tanks or anything else going to overcome the fact that you have literally wiped out a fourth of the population for all intents and purposes, death and, and departure, okay? So you haven't got a standing force People have got to be tired of this. And, uh, you know, and Russia doesn't show any signs of wanting to negotiate a peace settlement. None, none. So this is a never-ending war. Russia knows all about never-ending wars. Only this time, I think they're ready. And if Chairman Xi wants to throw in with Putin, all bets are off, my friends. So thank goodness that the usual suspects, Senator Ron Johnson, um, Senator Rick Scott, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Senator Bill Haggerty, and John Barrasso, and Ted Cruz, and Steve Daines, and Tom Tillis, and Tom Cotton, and Mike Braun, and Tommy Tuberville, and Roger Marshall, and Katie Britt, and I'm thinking, did I miss anybody? John Hoven, you know, the Mike Lee, these guys have said, no, 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 no. The WHO, along with our federal health agencies, failed miserably in their response to COVID-19. This failure should not be rewarded with a new international treaty that would increase the WHO's power at the expense of American sovereignty. But that doesn't mean that Joe Biden isn't going to sign it, even if it's approved. What happens? Once he signs it, it's, uh, it's game over. You know, as Francis Boyle, a professor of international law at Illinois University said, with all due respect to the sponsoring senators, that will not do the trick. The reason is that the WHO Accord is drafted specifically to circumvent the Senate approval process. And Congress instead should immediately withhold its yearly contributions to the WHO and take the United States out of the organization, which by the way, 45 did. The United States is the largest contributor to the WHO. And you know who the second largest contributor is? Bill Gates, okay? China's the third. So. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that the Biden administration is going to need Senate approval for this accord to go into effect. So all of this is basically whistling past the graveyard, as they say. The Biden administration can indicate that it is provisionally bringing this treaty into force upon the mere signature of the treaty. 
It'll come into force here in the United States provisionally until the Senate decides whether or not it's going to give its advice and consent to the treaty. I personally know of no other U.S. treaty that provides for its provisional application pending the Senate giving its advice and consent to the treaty. But don't think that just because it never happened before and just because it's unconstitutional and just because it's not right that this president won't do it. The U.S. Constitution is very clear. It states that the president can make treaties provided two-thirds, not a majority, two-thirds of the senators present concur. And American presidents have increasingly been signing these international agreements without Senate consent. And then these agreements have taken effect in the U.S. regardless. According to the United States Senate website, treaties to which the United States is a party also have the force of federal legislation, forming part of what the Constitution calls the supreme law of the land. In recent decades, presidents have frequently entered the United States into, have, have entered us into international agreements without the advice and consent. These are called executive agreements. They're still binding. You just, you, you just, I, I'm rolling my eyes because there's not much else you can do. You know, you got to be, you got to find a group that's willing to push back against these people. Because if not, well, then there's really not much hope, is there? It won't really matter. If we're not going to find legislators who are going to go to Washington and say, hey, hey, this is unacceptable and we're going to take you to court. Well, then guess what? Presidents will continue to sign executive orders and executive agreements and executive this and executive that. And both sides, by the way, Democrats and Republicans. So I don't know what to tell you. You know, last week I failed to make this announcement that I had gotten a, a I guess, a, an alert telling me that I needed to um, download or, or upload whatever it is that you do when you have a... Um, when they want to upgrade your operating system, right, on my iPhone. It said, oh, security alert. Everybody needs to download this uh, because it has the new security uh, stuff on it. I don't even know half the time what I'm, what I'm doing, you know, which is terrible. Um, but I'm fearful, and I do it, <laughs> you know, because I don't want my information stolen. Well, today, a federal agency, which is what happened to iPhone users, a U.S. cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency issued more alerts related to security vulnerabilities exploited in attacks targeting Microsoft Windows, Adobe products, and Mozilla software. And that's right after that alert that I got that was sent for administrators and users to update all their Apple products, including iPhones that use iOS software. Microsoft has released updates to address multiple vulnerabilities in Microsoft software. Let me ask you, is there anybody in my listening audience right now that doesn't have a device that's got Microsoft uh, operating system on it? Like I have one, two, three laptops, four laptops. I've got um, a desktop. All of them have Microsoft systems on them. Every last one of them. Only my Apple stuff doesn't. And I only have iPads and, uh, and the iPhone. I don't have a Mac. Oh, that's not true. I do have a Mac. I just never use it. 
I gave it to somebody to download something for me and they never gave it back. So I have no idea where it is. I assume it's at their house somewhere. But what is all this, you know, going on where, where they have all these vulnerabilities and, and the, now the government's telling me, oh, we've authenticated attackers and they could exploit the vulnerability by convincing a victim through social engineering to download and open a specially crafted file from a website, which could lead to an attack on the victim computer. Oh my gosh. It sounds like a, you know, like a, a major motion picture about cybersecurity, doesn't it? Microsoft says that impacted customers will receive automatic updates, but those who have disabled automatic updates, like me, can get them via the Microsoft Store. By going to library, get updates, then click update all, I ain't doing it. I'm sorry. I think deep down inside, there are days when I hope that this whole system and all of these devices that I have, I can't use them anymore. That the vulnerabilities are too great and that I go off the grid. It's a fantasy. We're all entitled, right? You know, some people have fantasies, like in the last show, uh, Martha, Mc, uh, Martha McCallum was saying she wanted to sing and dance. I did that in New York, so I, that's not one of my fantasies. But one of my fantasies is living off the grid. No phone, no computer, nothing but paperbacks. How about that? Doesn't that sound good? Maybe only to me. All right, don't forget to download the 850 app. Here I am saying, oh, I can't wait to get off all these apps. But would you please download the 850 app and will you visit our website, 850WFTL? Because until we go off the grid, these are good things to have. And we have some contests going on right now at News Talk 850WFTL. Two ways for you to win. You can register to win um, various sweepstakes right at the website, 850WFTL.com, and get rewarded when you listen on the app. You can win gift cards to... Uh, to uh, Bole Fresh. You can get a rib roundup pair of tickets if you're really lucky. That's a good prize. But whatever you do, download the app. I'll be right back. So the Internal Revenue Service has decided to bolster the ranks of its weapon-carrying criminal investigation unit, right? How long have we been talking about this and how little has been done? That is the question. So a former special agent working for the IRS in that criminal investigation unit, just uh, whistle blew. And he said, the, the inner workings of the division and its key function is to put the fear of God in people and intimidate Americans into tax compliance. Former IRS Special Agent Robert Norlander, now I like the fact that he gave his name. Because you see, when they tell me, oh, uh, well, we had some uh, anonymous source who was on the inside came and gave us this story. No, no, no. This guy literally told Accounting Today in a wide-ranging interview that was published this week that while most Americans have a sense of what IRS tax audits look like, the work of the IRS criminal investigation unit is shrouded in some mystery, dubbed gun toters. The armed special agents in the unit are responsible for enforcing those parts of tax code whose violations amount to crimes. He said, when crimes are committed, the IRS CI are the ones that actually enforce the law. The IRS CI examines potential criminal activity related to tax crimes and makes recommendations for prosecution to the tax division of the Department of Justice. There are now around 2,100 gun toters in the criminal investigations division. 
and the IRS, flush with funds from a new cash injection, is looking to hire more special agents. A public affairs officer at IRSCI told uh, the Epic Times in an email statement that the unit is hoping to hire between 300 and 350 special agents this year. In the mid-1990s, the unit had around 3,500 special agents, and Cottrell said they lose between 150 and 175 agents each year due to retirement and attrition. The idea of an army of 87,000 new tax enforcement agents surged into the spotlight and became an internet meme after Republicans warned that the $80 billion in new IRS funding under the Inflation Reduction Act would squeeze ordinary Americans for every last penny. 87,000 more IRS enforcers would make the IRS bigger than the Pentagon, the State Department, and Border Patrol combined. Think about that. President Joe Biden, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, former IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick, and others have pushed back on such framing of the funding boost. They've insisted the money would be used to increase collections from high earners and help with customer service. What do you need a gun to help with customer service or to increase collections from high earners? That doesn't even make sense, does it? Americans earning less than 400,000 wouldn't face increased scrutiny from the agency, but we know that's not true because there's just not enough money in it. There's not enough rich people to make it worth their while. They have to come after other people. IRS officials have also said that whatever portion of the money would go towards new hires wouldn't just be for tax enforcers. As a matter of fact, the IRS communications and liaison chief said in an email that the new funding would be used to hire people across various departments. In reality, the proposal would hire a variety of people across the agency to support not only enforcement, but taxpayer service and technology improvements. Only part of the new funding will go to hire more special agents. Well, then why did they, you know, look, I want to know why the government is treating the IRS as a military agency. Why are they stockpiling ammunition? You know, I think those are legitimate questions. The NRA also raised the question of whether IRS agents need to be armed and pointed to a 2018 report from the GAO showing that the IRS had some 2,500 rounds of ammo per armed agent. 2,500 rounds of ammo per armed agent, which is why I continue to uh, score as much ammo as I possibly can. The IRSCI itself says agents might need to respond to life threats. I wonder if I think when I lower my voice that that means the authorities can't hear me because that's stupid. If you can hear me, they can hear me. Anyway, <laughs> I guess I do it for dramatic effect. Um, it's to protect themselves and others from physical attacks. And they must be willing to use deadly force. Like, come on. It's difficult to, to, to be cynical about all these new, it's, you know, it's easy rather to be cynical about all these new and impossibly armed IRS agents, given the fact that uh, Joe Biden hates guns, right? I, you know, look, a, a segment of the IRS probably does need to be armed, but not this larger group. Norlander, the former IRS CI special agent, said agents need to carry weapons because they never know what hazards lurk behind closed doors when executing warrants. 
You don't know if the guy's a drug dealer that happens to just file false tax returns, he said, recalling a case where someone arrested for tax crimes ended up also being wanted for armed robbery. In some cases, white-collar criminals can be even more dangerous than gang members who may have been in and out of prison have had repeated run-ins with law enforcement, he said. These people have a lot to lose, suggesting that some white-collar criminals who are confronted by IRS agents can react unpredictably when they realize the jig is up and their world comes crashing down. They know they did the fraud, and once they do the fraud, they're going to go away. Well, guess what? I assume they factor that in with their greed, right? Accounting nerds with a gun and a badge is how, you know, I think of these IRSCI special agents. I really think that they're just trying to scare us, and they've done a very good job. I must admit, scared me enough to, uh, you know, to make sure that I purchased a lot of ammo. Just saying, you know, not too loud, but just, just saying anyway. All right, let me take a break. Uh, don't forget that uh, we have a lot more to cover in the next half hour, so you want to keep your dial right where it is. My, 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 my. Uh, just uh, crazy stuff. Right now, the guys up in Tallahassee, I, I don't have um, Blazing Goalie on this week. He'll be on next week. But the uh, lawmakers up there are moving forward with a bill that would make it easier for prominent people to sue media outlets for defamation, which of course uh, means there's going to be a First Amendment clash in the courts following that, which is fascinating. They're set to take up the measure that challenges the protections for the press that basically were set in place by the US Supreme Court. Uh, Representative Alex Andrade from Pensacola, filed an initial version of the bill on Monday, which was withdrawn and replaced with a new one with added provisions. I think the bill is HB 991, on, and, and um, we'll see what happened. You know, the, the governor called for the legislature to act on what he calls the Legacy Media Defamation Practices Bill because, of course, he clashes with the media all the time, and he's always accusing the outlets of unfair coverage of his policies, and that's true. And, you know, uh, it's very much in the Trump mold because just about everything he does is in the Trump mold. Just saying. I mean, at least he knows a winner when he is, uh, is presented with one. There's a lot of uh, amazing things going on right now. The greatest thing that I can say right now about the candidacy of the guy that I have uh, decided I would support, Donald Trump, is the fact that uh, George Soros has declared all-out war. First and foremost, how old is George Soros, and why does he still have so much power? But the fact that he hates Donald Trump as much as he does, and uh, publicly declared that he opposes them and predicted a Democrat landslide in 2024. This was at the Global Security Conference. You know, this is the guy behind the curtain who's destroying our country. This is the guy who puts you dead last. This is the guy who wants to obliterate the whole movement, the MAGA, America First. He, he just wants it to go away. And I can only speak for myself, but not so fast, George. You know, you finally met your match. 
I believe. And, and that's pretty, pretty serious. Uh, and, and I love, I love a good fight. I really do. But you know what? One thing I don't love, I don't love the way we have all become so enamored of watching people fail. And in this case, watching people fall. Like there was video out yesterday of somebody falling down the steps of the airplane that was bringing President Biden to Poland. And it wasn't Air Force One because, of course, you know, these kinds of flights and missions are very secretive. And they don't want to, you know, have to make sure that the, you know, Putin's not tracking or Xi's not tracking the the airplane. And it's kind of hard to hide Air Force One, just saying. You know, so they go in a smaller plane. And there's a scene that's on every site of somebody tumbling down the stairs. And immediately there were certain sites that just, uh, uh, you know, said, oh, look, he's fallen again. It's Joe Biden. And you can't tell who it is. You really can't. And the person, you know, actually falls, almost looks like headlong down the stairs and is caught at the bottom by somebody. So, so eager just so eager is are certain websites and certain members of the media to cast dispersions on the president. Believe me, I, you know, I despise the guy. You know, I think he's a danger, danger not just to America but to the world. But that doesn't change the fact that we have to be somewhat uh, circumspect and accurate when we report these things. Whoever it was that f uh, fell down the uh, stairs should step forward, and the team. The Biden team should tell us who it was so that you don't end up with all this garbage because it just makes it just makes the right look bad. You know, if, if we're going to instantly assume that it was our president and then we find out it was like some second level aide or something. Who looks bad? Not not Joe Biden. You look bad. We look bad. And I'm just tired of people not being conscious of the fact that it's very easy to hope that something you're watching fits your narrative. That's what the mainstream media does all the time. And if it doesn't fit their narrative, they tweak it until they can make it fit their narrative. I don't want to see us, the handful of us left in talk radio, do that. The handful of us with conservative websites where articles are written, I don't want to see us do that. The other thing that I wanted to talk about today is the fact that the Supreme Court is taking a very, very big case today. It's the case of whether Facebook and Twitter and YouTube can actually be sued over a 2017 Islamic State group attack on a Turkish nightclub based on the argument that the platforms assisted in fueling the growth of the terrorist organization. So what the justices decide to do in this case and a related one that it heard yesterday is important, particularly because the companies have been shielded from liability on the internet. That's why they've grown into these, you know, tech oligarchies, uh, tech monopolies that they have, these giant companies. They couldn't be so gigantic if they had liability, if you could sue them. On the first day of arguments, the justices suggested 
they had little appetite for a far-reaching ruling that would upend the Internet. Wednesday's case about the nightclub attack in which 39 people died could actually provide an off-ramp for the justices if they want to limit the impact of what they do. Because at the heart of the cases before the justices are two federal laws. The first is Section 230 of the Federal Communications Decency Act, which protects tech companies from being sued over material put on their sites by others, by users. And the second is the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, which allows Americans who are injured by a terrorist attack abroad to sue for money damages in federal court. So what happened was a in Wednesday's case, the family of a man killed in the Reina nightclub attack in Istanbul sued Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube's parent Google under the terrorism law. Norwas Alasov's family members, who are U.S. citizens, say the companies aided and abetted the attack because they assisted in the growth of the Islamic State group, which was who claimed responsibility for the attack. And apparently a lower court let that lawsuit go forward. So what they're arguing, uh, what, the, what the media companies are arguing is they can't be sued because they didn't knowingly or substantially assist in this attack. And if the justices agree with the platforms, they don't have to answer bigger questions about Section 230 and whether it protects platforms when they recommend content. You see, because that's the, the broader question about Section 230, which is what they were listening, the case they were listening to yesterday. Because in that case, the family of an American college student who was one of the 130 people killed in the Paris attacks sued under the terrorism law. Um, The family of Nohimi Gonzalez argued that the Islamic State group used YouTube to spread its message and recruit people to its cause. They said that YouTube's algorithm, which recommends videos to users based on their viewing habits, was critical to the Islamic State group's growth. Now, of course, lower courts ruled that Section 230 um, barred the lawsuit. But what I noticed in readings through some of the notes on the SCOTUS website is that the Supreme Court justices, for the most part, admit out loud at least uh, the Justice Kintanji Brown Jackson seemed to say that the attorney representing the Gonzalez family who argued Google should not be protected, she says, I guess I'm thoroughly confused, Justice Kintanji Brown Jackson told Eric Schnapper, the attorney. Conservative Justice Clarence Thomas, the only justice to have previously expressed doubts about the breadth of Section 230's protections publicly, similarly expressed confusion. And in the early moments of the argument, said Schnapper needed to give the justices a clearer point. These are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, liberal justice Elena Kagan later quipped. Which is interesting because these are lifetime appointments, okay? And the internet is here to stay. And there's going to be a lot of legal challenges to these tech companies down the line. And I don't know that any of these justices, particularly the older ones, are going to be interested in even getting up to snuff on this. 
In other words, if you undo Section 230, you could, you could really um, mess things up. You would have companies that were constantly in litigation, and the smaller firms would just be run out of business. So it's not like you'd really be affecting the larger tech companies, the larger platforms. You'd just be destroying the smaller ones. And Congress, who are ultimately responsible for the laws that we're looking at, right? These laws are, you know, the Communications Decency Act was passed by Congress. And, you know, now the Supreme Court's uh, being asked to not just weigh in on the constitutionality of the cases that are being presented in front of them, they're being asked to weigh, weigh in on whether or not Congress ever should have done this. When Kagan asked if Section 230 protections only apply because YouTube's recommendation algorithm was neutral, the attorney for uh, Google, Blatt, Lisa Blatt, said uh, that, that Section 230 also protects algorithms developed with more nefarious purposes. Jackson repeatedly stressed Congress's intent in passing Section 230, saying they did so to protect internet companies that take down third-party content in good faith. You're saying the protection extends to internet platforms that are promoting offensive material. So it suggests to me that is exactly the opposite of what Congress was trying to do in the statute. Justice, so again, they're being asked to kind of overturn statutes. Justices also questioned whether they are the proper body to make changes to Section 230. That's what I'm talking about. You don't have to be a lawyer and you don't have to be a judge to understand that there are a lot of algorithms that are not going to produce pro-ISIS content and that won't create a problem under the statute, but maybe they'll produce defamatory content or maybe they'll produce content that violates some other law. And your argument can't be limited to the one statute. Justice Amy Coney Barrett questioned whether the court could instead send the case back to the lower courts, depending on the outcome in a case set to be argued today. That case, which is Twitter versus Tamina, will interpret the anti-terrorism law that the Gonzalez family believes makes Google liable in the first place. Here's my guess, okay? They're going to kick it out. They're going to kick it back because they don't, this is very difficult stuff, even for people who are sophisticated about such things. But, you know, we got members of the Supreme Court who are lucky if they could, you know, upload a video on their laptop. Uh, I'm not making fun of them. I'm the same. You know, if you're over the age of 65, this technology is stunningly powerful and usually somewhat beyond your comprehension. You know, you just kind of go along. Or at least that's been my experience. That's why I think for Lent, I should just give it all up. Anyway, let me, uh, let me take a break. Don't forget, at 1 o'clock is Dan Bongino. At 4 o'clock is Ben Shapiro. And then at uh, 6 o'clock is the WPTV Local News. And we will have our morning crew back first thing in the morning, 6 o'clock. So you stay right where you are for now. I have one more segment left. I got to tell you, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of these stories that are out there. And I'm just, I'm really, I'm sort of stunned 
by what people believe. You know, how, how dumb do you have to be to believe some of the stories that are out there? Like this, for instance, although my producer and I just kind of hashed it out. Um, because, I, you know, it, it, the headline doesn't make any sense to me. The headline in roll call of all magazines, right? Not, not just like, you know, People magazine or something where you might think it's not very serious. Roll call, or The Hill, no, it was actually The Hill that I saw it in, says that uh, most young men are single, most young women are not. So I said, how is that possible? You know, how is it possible that young men are single nearly twice the rate of unattached young women? What does that signal? I think it signals a breakdown in the in the romantic and sexual life of the American male, but we noted that young women don't marry young men all the time. Young women marry older men. And men, as my producer pointed out to me, a lot of them don't want to get married until they're in their 30s. Not interested. Uh, women, on the other hand, they, uh, you know, they still want to look good in the wedding gown. They, they want to be, oh, uh, I'll get in trouble if I say this. They want to be in their prime. <laughs> which Don Lamont has told us is 20s, 30s, and 40s. By the way, last night I was watching, um, I was watching the uh, Tucker Carlson show, and it was interesting to me because he went on this whole rant about how he was going to miss Don Lamont, and I'm looking at my husband, and I go, Don Lamont will be back on the air on Wednesday. I mean, um, it's silly to be talking about him getting fired. He didn't get fired. Chris Licht said on Monday that he's going to go through some kind of training or sensitivity training or some, you know, whatever that they put you through. I hate these things, these these, uh, in-depth training sessions. Uh, I said, and then I'll be back. They're not going to get rid of him yet. They got to buy him out of that contract. And, you know, they're not making any money. They've been in enough trouble, you know, and I doubt that they're uh, ready to buy him out. So, you know, I I just, women are not in their prime in their 20s and 30s. I'm just going to tell you that. My personal experience, women are in their prime in their 40s and 50s. And then they start to like, uh, you know, uh, lose that prime edge in their 60s. But in my 20s, I was... um, how do I say this gently? I was uh, running on hormones and and, uh, and 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 social justice. I mean, you know, my twenties were definitely not my prime. Definitely not my prime. Even my thirties. My thirties were the more complicated years. In their thirties, women are very involved. Most of them in motherhood, in trying to establish a career and be in motherhood. Uh, taking care of houses, taking care of families. And that's not their prime. My prime was like in my 40s. When my youngest went off to college, I was in my mid-40s. I was young when I had my kids. And that was the prime of life. My 50s, prime of life. I, I was now financially secure. I was now confident. I was now, I still looked good. You know, I still had strength and vigor and all that other stuff. So, you know, Don Lamont, I don't know what you Googled, but that's just not true. 
And the reason young women are uh, not single is because they're des- they, they don't want to be single. And the reason young men are single is because they want to be single. They figure they can, you know, just uh, play around. The average age of a first marriage for men is 30, but it's really only 28 for women. Heterosexual women are getting more choosy. <laughs> women don't want to marry down to form a long-term relationship to a man with less education and earnings than herself, according to a professor at the University of Akron. In previous generations, young women entered adulthood in a society that expected them to find a financially stable man who would support them through decades of marriage and motherhood. Over the 1950s and 1960s, that pattern gradually broke down, and today it is all but gone. Women are tiring of their role as full-time therapist for emotionally distant man. They want a partner who's emotionally open and empathetic, the opposite of the age-old masculine ideal. I guess that's true. The same emotional deficits that hurt men in the dating pool also hamper them in forming meaningful friendships, right? 15% of men report having no close friendships. That's like five times the amount who reported that in the 90s. Men are less naturally relational than women. Hmm, I don't know about that. Different. They have the sports avenue to have relationships with other men's way more than, than women do, although now women have plenty. Tomorrow I want to talk about Malcolm X's family that is filing a $100 million lawsuit alleging that the FBI and the uh, CIA and other federal and state government agencies concealed evidence about his killing. He was killed, of course, at the Audubon Ballroom right across the street from my father's workplace in February of 1965, shot and killed while speaking. For years, we have fought for the truth to come to light. So tomorrow I want to delve into that a little bit and, of course, talk with Derek about celebrity news. In the meantime, I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, my plan is to be back here tomorrow at noon if it be his will and he delays his coming. What... Uh, lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. And if you're Pete Buttigieg, get your Buttigieg to uh, Palestine. God bless you. I'll see you all tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.